Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you for a privilege to be able to look into your word. Your word is truth, and your truth transforms. It sets captives free. I pray, speak volumes of truth to us today, God. We've got a lot on our plate going through 16 chapters of Romans, and just ask for your grace, Father. Help us to make this meaningful and go beyond the facts and really be able to dig in and allow your truth to settle in our hearts tonight. Father, I just ask if there are any here tonight who are just feeling weary and need that refreshment by the Spirit of God and through your truth, would you would you give that and impart that to them tonight, God? Father, would you minister to our hearts and would you have your way here tonight? You're in control. May you speak tonight, Lord, to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Romans. Who, who needs... Um, would you mind just... I'm gonna, can we scoot down just a little bit and maybe... Uh, okay. All right. Then, okay. Romans. Romans. Awesome, awesome book. Now, I preached on Romans... Not all of it, but um, through chapter 9, 10, 11, um, and then some into the application chapters. But I, I did it in a, in a very different way. And if you don't remember that, you are more than free to go online to the sermons. And uh, it's, it's pretty self-evident where you're going to find that ro- uh, series in the book of Romans. Um, and I trust that it was really, really beneficial for us. Uh, I know for me, I was super blessed going through it. Um, so tonight, seeing that we took several months to go through the book of Romans, to do it in an hour and a half is like impossible. So we uh, get out your skim board and we're going to start skimming through the book of Romans. Um, and so as I usually do, my goal will be to camp out a little bit here and there. And skip other parts because we just cannot um, dig in as as we really, really need to. So, okay. All right. Um, tell you what. Two guys in the back. Would you mind finding... Uh, we can. Someone can sit here. And then I'm trying to just fill in these front two rows if we can. And boys, if you could scoot down a little bit next to your mom. Um, and then we got a seat there. Great, 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 great. Book of Romans. Paul, of course, wrote Romans. We wouldn't be studying it if he didn't, because this is a Pauline epistles class. But he wrote it around 57 AD. And the reason why we say 57 AD is because what he says in the very last chapter, so if you're in chapter 1, go ahead and skip to the end of the book. Chapter 16, Paul says... In verse 22, excuse me, 23, he says, Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, send you his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Cordus send you their greetings. Now, the reason why we believe that it was written from Corinth is because uh, we we, we find Gaius in... 1 Corinthians 1.14, and he seems to be very well known to the Corinthians. So he either is a resident of Corinth or Centria. 
Centria is only a few miles away from Corinth, so it's also possible that Paul wrote it from Centria. That's possible. But more than likely from Corinth. Erastus, they have found, um, a, he's considered here the director of public works, city's public works. A stone from a paved square was discovered, and it reads in Latin, Erastus, commissioner of public works, bore the expense of this pavement. So with this idea that Gaius ha- is, is a, is having Paul and his entourage in his home, and he is more than likely from Corinth, and that Erastus, probably the, um, one, who, the, the same Erastus who did this, uh, paved square, um, we get the, we, it's pretty clear that he wrote this from Corinth or maybe Centria. But in 57 AD, and we say that because in, at the end of chapter 15, verses 25 through 28, I want to read those four verses to us. Uh, chapter 15, verses 25 through 28. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the saints there for, for Macedonia and Achaia. Now, Corinth is in Achaia. He says, for Macedonia and Achaia, we're pleased to have a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So we know that he's already collected the money from Corinth, from Centria, from the people in Achaia, southern Greece, and Macedonia, which would be northern Greece, etc. So he's at the tail end of his third missionary journey, which would be in 57 AD. From there, then, he sails to, uh, he eventually sails to Miletus, where in Acts 19, he addresses the Ephesian elders, and then from there, he sails to Jerusalem. So this is the end of his third missionary journey. He has collected all of the monies for the saints in Jerusalem. Verse 27, they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. So after I've completed this task and have made sure that they have received this fruit, I will go to Spain and visit you on my way. So now we come to another interesting fact, and that is that Paul has never ministered to the Romans. Um, This isn't his only letter that he actually wrote a letter to a city that he had never, he had not been to or ministered to, at least that we're aware of, that Luke mentions to us. The other, any idea what the other letter might be, the other city that Paul wrote a letter to? That he was, he did not go there as an apostle to evangelize. Someone else did that. Colossians. Very good. Colossians. Um, and so when we get to Colossians, we'll talk about that. Someone else actually, while well, Paul was more than likely in Ephesus, he sent delegates there to evangelize. And uh, the Corinthians were, or excuse me, the Colossians were one to Christ. All right. So Romans is very unique in that Paul had not been to Rome to minister. But what is also unique, if you're in chapter 16, do you see that long list of people that he knows who lives in Rome? That's actually the longest list of people that he sends greetings to of any letter that he writes, any, any book in the Bible. 
And it's just interesting because we we know this that he eventually he apparently had met the people that he's he's sending greetings to. He'd met them outside of Rome. That's obvious, but they were more than likely um, either missionaries or had or were Jews and had been kicked out of Rome. Um, and that happened with uh, Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila got kicked out of Rome. Paul encounters them in Corinth. He then. Uh, they go with him and he drops them off at Ephesus. He picks them up at Ephesus. They follow him. And now in 57 AD, <clears throat> they, or, or, or they were left in Ephesus and they eventually made their way back to Rome. So in 57 AD, he apparently, they have moved back to Rome and he actually speaks to them and it says, greet the church that meets in their home. A lot of house churches, a lot of house churches. Very rarely were there uh, meetings outside of houses. We know that um, the hall of, uh, oh my goodness, what's the guy's name in Acts 19? Um, yeah, it, it just totally escaped me. But big meeting hall where Paul had been ministering, had been kicked out of the synagogue, and he had been ministering to the, the people there in Ephesus. Um, so, Paul, uh, or the church, regularly met in homes, though there were also other places, though we do see uh, this right here, Priscilla and Aquila, and Paul is, is sending greetings to them in the, house, in the church that meets in their home. Um, end of his missionary journey, 57 AD. And we also encounter someone else that I'm going to point out to you in verse 13. And that gentleman's name is Rufus. And it's very possible that his brother's name is Alexander and his dad's name is Simon from Cyrene. Does anyone know who Simon from Cyrene would be? Jesus. What? Who? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus was helped by him. Okay, Jesus, pause, was helped by him. Yes. You're right, he wasn't Jesus, but we understand... He's eating, and so the, he spoke between swallows. So, yes, and it's and Mark tells us that Rufus and Alexander were his two sons. Mark more than likely wrote from Rome, that's what tradition tells us, his gospel, and knew, probably knew Rufus. And so Rufus was not a real common name, uh, actually rare, and so for this to be the same Rufus is, is very, very possible. Uh, no other gospel does it mention Simon the Cyrene, the father of Rufus and Alexander. Okay? So he probably does that because he knows Alexander, Mark does, knows Alexander and Rufus. Um, and so, anyway, that is more than likely the son of the gentleman who helped carry Jesus' cross. All right. The purpose of this letter, then, is Paul's desire to ensure the Romans' understanding of the gospel before his visit later on on his way to Spain. Remember, he was going to drop the offering off in Jerusalem, and then he was going to head to head on a fourth missionary journey to Spain. Now, we don't know if he actually made it to Spain. Tradition tells us uh, in the very next century that he did, so it's very possible that he did. Um but he was going to visit Rome on his way to Spain. Did he do that? Did he visit Rome? 
on his. Yes, he did. Except he did not go in the way he was expecting, did he? He went with chains. Um, so I just want to point this out. Even with Paul, he had a desire in his heart. He made plans. We talked about some of the plans that kind of fell through with the Corinthians and how the false apostles were trying to undermine Paul as a result of that. Uh, we read about that in 2 Corinthians. And now Paul has this desire. I'm going to go to Spain and I'm going to hit you guys on the way there. However, it did not go according to his plan at all. And as a matter of fact, at the end of chapter 15, I didn't read it to you. He says, pray for me that God will rescue me from the Jews when I go to Jerusalem. And even though he prayed and solicited the prayers of others, God did not rescue him. Now, he rescued him from death, but he did not rescue him from arrest. And so for a minimum of two years, he was in prison, arrested there in Jerusalem, and then sent to Caesarea and in prison for two years until finally he appeals to Caesar and he gets shipped off, literally shipped off to Rome. Okay? So his goal then is to visit Rome that he has never done, that we're aware of, never done. And he wants to prepare the way with this letter. So the focus of the letter is the gospel of Jesus Christ that he has been proclaiming. And that takes the first 11 chapters. Chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16. So five more chapters focus on more of the application. And his focus, and we're going to see this, is going to be this topic of love. And so love then flows out of the gospel. We have been changed, and consequently, we are different people. We, we live our lives in a way that is a poured out living sacrifice that reflects the sacrifice of Christ, which is all about love. And so we're going to see that in those last chapters. So let's start in the beginning with chapter 1. Um, before Paul shares the gospel, what does the gospel literally mean, by the way? Good news, that's right. You, angelion. Angelion means message. We get the word angelos, which is angel, messenger. And you, like eulogy, means good. Good, angelos, message. So, good news. Now, before he shares the good news, Paul needs to first share why he is telling them the good news. The good news is only good because of the bad news. Okay? So what do you want, guys? Do you want the good news first or the bad news first? And Paul says, you know what? I'm going to share the bad news with you first. Because if you don't know the bad news, then the good news is like, eh. And the good news is super good news in view of this bad news. What is the bad news? The corruption of sin. And not just the corruption of sin, but what else? Okay. And verse chapter 1, verse 18, specifically God's wrath. God's wrath that is revealed from heaven and it is poured out upon the ungodly who are suppressing the knowledge of God by their wickedness. All right? Now, he introduces that by talking about the gospel in general 
and he says, kind of like in a way of introduction, verse 17, for the gospel, excuse me, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. So if we just had that first line, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, we might assume, well, that was Jesus' death on the cross. Chapter 5 actually tells us that that was an act of righteousness. But we know that that's not what he is getting at, though it comes from that act of righteousness. This righteousness is something that God gives to us by faith. And we're going to need to get it. We're going to get into that. But... That is the good news. The very fact that God has given us this righteousness and it is not something that we have earned. And But now he's got to explain why that is such amazing news. First, the bad news, God's wrath is being revealed to us from heaven. People suppress the knowledge of God and therefore the knowledge of his wrath by their wickedness. And then he says something interesting in verse 20. He says, right at the very end, do you see that? So that men are without excuse. God has revealed himself in creation so that men are without excuse. How has God revealed himself in creation? That's my question to you. How has God revealed himself? First of all, what has God revealed of himself? Look at the text. Look at the text there. Okay. His invisible power, okay, uh, So, or his eternal power, excuse me. And so that, he, he wants to bring that out because God is omnipotent. And we sinners, we rebels, we wicked people uh, in rebellion against God, he is far greater, his eternal power. And so he needs to express the concept of God's eternal power, and therefore he is the sovereign of all. He is the creator of all. He created you who are in rebellion against him and against the knowledge of him. So he's, he's revealed his eternal power. And he's revealed his, what again? Divine nature. nature. Okay. Divine nature does not mean his essence. The Greek word here actually speaks more of the attributes of deity. The attributes of deity. Okay. The attributes of God. So like, Exactly. Yes. So how do, how has God look at cre- if we were to go outside and look at creation? What would you point out to me that would speak of His eternal power? The ocean. The ocean. Explain. So big and so powerful and so like you know, uncomparable with just a man. Like you, you, you ocean is so big and so powerful and a merely man. And not put out with the ocean. Okay. Dinosaurs. And God, okay, dinosaurs. Well, you're not going to go outside and see dinosaurs, but yes. Um, so the, especially the really big dinosaurs, the vastness and the power of the ocean, uh, 
And God created this. He didn't take created parts and assimilate it like man does, because man can create things that are bigger and more powerful than him. God cannot. Out of nothing, God created this, the vastness of the ocean and the power and the roar of the waves and such, okay? What else would describe his, or, or would highlight his eternal power? Okay. 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 Um, and that's going to get into a lot more than just God's eternal power. If I were to go outside right now, there is something up in the sky that absolutely convinces me of God's eternal power. What would that be? The sun. The sun is huge and it is powerful. God created that. As a matter of fact, the sun on a scale from small stars to large stars is on the small end size. There are, and, and I can't remember the vastness of the, the biggest star that they have discovered so far, but it is absolutely ginormous. It would, if I, if this, this, that star, I can't remember the name of it, were to fill, would actually fill this room, the sun would be just a, a little pencil point. It, it is that huge. The vast eternal power of God. Now, how about, if it, how about his attributes? Pick out something in God's creation and tell me what attribute that highlights of God. Juliana. God is relational. Because he created even animals, well, a lot of animals, to be in families, relationship yeah. with each other. Okay, you don't see a school of fish where sharks are hanging out and seaweed and, I don't know, uh, sturgeon, um, um, all different kinds of things. No, fish hang out with fish. All right? You have schools of fish. They hang out together. They're, they're buddy-buddy. And that's just the way they go about their life. And there's this sense of community. It's even in, in animals and it's obviously within humans as well. Okay. Rose? I was just going to say, can you really do that, though? Because you can look at creation and see negative aspects of God, then. Uh, I would disagree with that. Like I don't how, think we see negative person, aspects. How would a person who's just looking at nature, not knowing the gospel at all, come to the conclusion that God is all-loving? Okay. Well, we're going to need to do that. We're going to need to do that. Because as an unbeliever, I look out and I see tornadoes that rip houses apart and kill people. Does that mean that that's what God does? So we're going to have to take these little, what I'm going to call breadcrumbs, and we're going to have to put them together and create a picture. But we've got to do it in a hurry. All right? Because of time. Um, so we do have tornadoes. We do have power that, that kills and diseases and this type of thing. All right. And so I'm looking at all of this. And by the way, on your point, the Romans created this uh, or the the uh, the Greeks created their mythology based on this principle that there's both good and bad. And therefore, there were good gods and bad gods. And the good gods had some evil and the, the bad gods had some good. And so that's how they explained good and evil in the world. Now, I'm going to say that that falls way too far short of what we actually see in creation. Okay? So if we were to go out there, 
What else would we see that would speak to us about God? Okay, I think I pulled my arms and pressed the button. I won't do that again. Go ahead. So you're by saying like I feeling a simple breeze of wind coming, like a refreshing breeze of wind. That can only come from God, from God's nature. And I feel like that gives me rest during a hot day. Okay. On Rose's point, though, we would also have to say that there is a cold wind that can actually freeze you to death. So I want you. To, I want you to. Highlight the really big stuff, the general stuff. When you walk out and you look at God's creation, are you struck with how ugly it is or how beautiful it is? How beautiful. Even deserts are beautiful. Okay? Now, some of them are a wasteland. And all it is is sand. You can't grow anything. Those are very rare. They're not everywhere. And so we're going to have to, when we go out, here's the main thing. Generally, the vast creation of God tells us something about him, but there's something wrong. You cannot get around that. In all of this beauty, of all of this, uh, we're going to talk a little bit more, of all of this that we're going to talk about, we're still going to find, we're, we have, we are struck by this fact that something is wrong. Okay? And we're going to need to find out, as an unbeliever, what is wrong? And I think we can do this. Okay? I think I truly think we can do this. We're not going to find the answer to what's wrong. That has to be told to us. But we can find out what's wrong. So when, we, when you go outside, what else do you see? Mickey Lana. Two things that stand out to me is definitely order. Order. Yes. And creativity. Just the Great. Of each thing. Mm-hmm. The complexity, even of the, even of a single cell, the simplest cell, very complex, very complex. The concept of DNA and how that works. Oh my goodness. It is absolutely amazingly intricate and complex. And so we would say, I'm going to use another word. I'm going to say design. And with every design, we would have to say there must be a what? Designer. Because design doesn't happen by accident. And when we see, like, I'm not going to get into the concept of crystals and the order there, but uh, that is not design necessarily. I'm talking ab- about uh, if we were to define this word design, it would go beyond just the formation of crystals that happen um, through the laws of physics. Okay, But God has created and ordered um, these things, and we, we know if there is a design then there must be a designer. You'd also mentioned creativity. So that would say that God is creative. Okay? All right, so uh, someone else. Hands were raised. Juliana? I was going to say that things like the rising of the sun every single okay. day. Okay, and elaborate. The Lord's faithfulness. Okay, his faithfulness. And that when he created his creation... He did not create, he he created it with a sense of order and systematization. Um, and, and that could speak of God's faithfulness. Okay. More of an analogy, though. Okay. I was wondering if even birds reflect God's attributes of life. 
Um, I'm sure that given enough thought, we could all come up with certain characteristics of God that that reflects, this concept of giving birth. Not that God was birthed, mind you, because God created all things, and if God was birthed, who birthed God? Well, no, God is life, so we thought God okay. we were dead. Say that again. So we thought God we were dead. So we need God to be alive, and to a woman giving birth, that is a reflection of life, you know, like a direct connection. Okay, all right. Yeah, I'm not going to dispute death, but um, we don't know that we're dead spiritually. The unbeliever can't look out into creation and know that he's dead. He can. I'm going to suggest to you that an unbeliever, when he looks at 90, 95% of creation, he is awestruck by it and says, wow, there must be a good God who is loving. Because why would he do this? And I'm on earth. And I truly believe that just rationally, we can come to the conclusion that evolution is not is not true. That life is absolutely impossible to have come from non-life. Back going back even further to the creation of, of all things, that something can never come from nothing. That is a scientific impossibility. And scientists still today are trying to figure out how something can come from nothing. They truly are. That is a no-brainer. But they're still working hard to try and, because if, if, if they, if they come to the conclusion that's the most obvious, they would have to say there is a God and they cannot tolerate that because God is outside of their parameters of study and science and he's the unpredictable one. And everything must fall into their realm of science. I have to be able to understand God. Did you catch what I just said? We believe that we have to understand God. The God that created me, I have to be able to understand. If I can't understand him, if there's things about God I don't understand, it's because there must be no God. That is totally illogical. But man wrestles with this because the alternative is God. And therefore, I am accountable to God. And as we look out into creation, again, we're going to see God is good, God is loving. He created this then for me. I'm here. And whenever you met Mickey Lana mentioned order, design, when there's a design, that implies a purpose to the design, or I'm going to say destiny. So we have a purpose. You know, the purpose, evolution, here's another thing. If, if evolution is true, the purposelessness of the universe somehow brought about a creature that is obsessed with purpose. If everything's just random and molecules bumping together to create even life and there's no purpose in it, it's just all random chance, how is it that man came on the stage and he is obsessed with purpose in the midst of, apparently, non-purposeness? If evolution is true. And I'm, of course, I don't believe it is. Now, I also believe that that with God we can see. Let me see if I wrote any of these things down. Um, we so we can see that He's obviously intelligent. Um, we've mentioned everything that I'm seeing here. Loving. Now I'm going to suggest also that we know that He is holy. 
Now, by going, looking out into creation, I can't necessarily see holiness, but here's what we can observe. And it's called in apologetics, the moral argument. And that's this, that within every single person, cross-generational, cross-cultural, there is this sense of right and wrong. We call it a conscience. There is some variations with from culture to culture, but for the most part, killing is wrong, stealing is wrong, taking another man's wife is wrong. Um, just a lot. There is just this inbred understanding of right and wrong. How did that happen? If everything is just random chance, that should be an utter impossibility. But we all have that. And then tell me, is conscience material? The scientist has a really tough one. The, the atheistic scientist has a really tough problem with that. Because he has to conclude it cannot be just chemicals exploding in the brain. It, it, it's, it's much more than that. Anyway, what we then realize is that there is this moral conscience. There is this sense of right and a sense of wrong. And if we have come to this conclusion, there is a God and he's loving and powerful and intelligent and creative, beautiful, then he created me. That's why I'm here and I have purpose because I have design. He then purposed, he, he then created this sense of right and wrong in me and I can actually look out into my world, and atheists do this too, and they say that's right and that's wrong. And there's now a, we see a distinction, excuse me, so now we know that man does wrong things, and he also does good things. We can look out into creation and we see not just moral evil, but we see natural evil, hurricanes and tornadoes. But these things take a backstage to all the good that's in this creation. And so I'm going to suggest to you that in the heart of even an atheist, there it must be this struggle that God is good and he is holy and I am not. And that something is broken in this world. And if man is the only creature that has a conscience and the ability to assess right and wrong, then he's the one who did what, what is wrong. And I truly believe that you can come to the conclusion that man is broken. There's something wrong in man. And it is somehow mirrored or affected, maybe even caused, the brokenness and the natural evil in this world. However, Paul's point then is no man will be able to stand before God with some sort of excuse. This should drive us to cry out to know this creator. And I truly believe that when man is willing to do that, he will find God. God will send a missionary. God will send someone to tell him the truth. Now, um, Paul's gospel then begins in chapter 3. This problem of man suppressing the knowledge of God 
and who God is because of his wickedness, even to the point where he becomes so wicked, God gives him over to his sin. And Paul uses the, the example of homosexuality. Homosexuality is in our culture because men have loved their sin. And God has given us over to that so that we do acts of sex with the same sex, same gender. Um, I'm not saying that homosexuality is far worse than adultery. I'm not saying that. But God has permitted man to run loose on the chain of sin and creating more destruction. To the point, now we come to, excuse me, chapter 3. And in chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, he says, what should we conclude? Are we any better? I'm not going to get into the context there, sorry, not at all. He says, we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. And I want you to underline those two words, under sin. A little bit later in verse 20, verse 19, he talks about being under the law. And in chapter 6, he says we are not under law, but we are under what? Grace. Grace. That's right. So this concept of being under, um, if I am under someone, that means I am under their authority. Uh, they can tell me what to do and what I can't do. I am under sin in the sense that it has authority over me. And when we hit chapter 6, even to the point where I am its slave. Okay? But he begins this concept of being under sin by despite quoting from uh, some Psalms. And he says, there is no one righteous, not even one. Do you see where I'm at in verse 10 there? Now verse 11. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. He's obviously not talking about Christians, people who have come into a relationship with God and have been, their minds have been illumined with who God is. He's talking about those who are outside of Christ. They are the ones who are under sin. We get to chapter seven. I believe Paul is, uh, referring to himself as an, as an unbeliever, unsaved, and he says, I have been sold, I am sold under sin. That is not a picture of a Christian. That is a picture of those who I'm describing right now. Under sin, under the control, the authority, the mastery of sin. Addicted to sin, if you will. No one who understands, no one who seeks God, all have turned away. They have all, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, poison of vipers, etc., etc. Not a pretty picture for man. We are lost in our sin, and we are controlled by our sin. Um, when he says right there, we have become worthless, that means we have lost our original purpose. Worth can mean more intrinsic worth. And I'm not going to say that man is no longer intrinsically valuable because if we kill a man, we must be put to death, Scripture says. But if we kill an animal, not so. And so God obviously sees a value upon those who bear his image and a value upon those who do not, the other animals. And there is a vast difference. So we're not talking 
God, he's not saying God is erasing that sense of value, but the Greek word here is, is more utilitarian. In other words, um, it, it becomes useless, unprofitable. It's not accomplishing its end goal. It's, it's, and the end goal was to be in relationship with God and obey Him and follow Him and embrace, therefore, our destiny in God. And we have stepped back as rebels and we have thrown that aside and said, not your will, but my will be done. And as a result, we have, we have become worthless or unprofitable, useless as a result of that. Not having no, not having no value or worthless in that sense. Okay. Do you understand what I'm saying there? And so now he then introduces this concept of our, our, let me just read it. Verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Verse 21. But now a righteousness from God, taken from chapter 1, verse 17, in the gospel, a righteousness is revealed to us from heaven. He now says in verse 21 of chapter 3, but now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known. Hang on a second now. What righteousness then, let me, let me back up and word this differently. We're going to talk right now about justification. There is a, a, a view out there that's been hanging on with the church and is honestly very big in England right now in which they define this righteousness very differently. Um, I love Charles Finney and what Charles Finney did in the Second Great Awakening. But I will have to say I firmly disagree with his view on this particular point within justification. Okay, He believed that, number one, there was no original sin. He also believed, therefore, that Christ did not give us his righteousness, but that he gave us the ability to obey, and this righteousness is our righteousness. It's us doing righteous acts. Now, it's not that those righteousness saves us. He, he preached it right that it's only by faith. He just misunderstood, I believe, this concept of God's righteousness. This is, this is God's righteousness, not my righteousness. God's righteousness that's imparted to us is apart from the law. If I obey the law, don't do this, don't do that, that is a reflection. We call that person a righteous man. Okay. I got that. But that righteousness cannot be this righteousness that he's talking about. That righteousness that happened, that's from observing the law. That type of righteousness cannot save anyone. That type of righteousness, apart from God's intervention in this concept of justification, that righteousness, Isaiah 64, 6 says, is like filthy rags. All our righteousness are as filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6. And so that type of righteousness that Charles Finney talked about cannot be this righteousness. Number one, because that righteousness that he's talking about here is, excuse me, let me find it. Okay. That righteousness is from God, not 
It does not originate with me. It does, it, Charles Finney leaned more, well, it originated from God because God gave you the ability. But that's not what he's talking about here. This is God's righteousness, not just an ability to do righteousness that's from God. That's not what he's saying here. All right? And so this is, this is key because it also impacts this concept of original sin we're going to get to in chapter five. But this righteousness is from God and he has given it to us. Now, to get into this con- this discussion about justification that takes all of chapter 4 and 5 and part of 3, he uses a term here that is very interesting that unfortunately I know in my version I don't have it. Maybe in yours it does. But he says here in, in verse 23, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All right? In verse 24, he says, And are justified... We're going to need to talk about what that is. Freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Jesus bought us. Look at this, verse 25. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. Who has the NASB? What does it say? Okay, there we go. Wonderful. He is a propitiation. Expiation. We're using some pretty technical terms here. I realize that. Expiation means the forgiveness of sins. Sins are washed away. Okay? Um, you caught me off guard there. It's, uh, again, um, it is the idea, not the word, because we have an English word expiation, And so some versions, and I don't know what they would be, might want to use the word expiation here instead of propitiation. But when you do a word study on this word, it it talks, it's in the context of God's wrath being turned away. So expiation is the washing away of sins and propitiation, propitiation has to do with this, okay, so expiation is the sacrifice that washes away the sins. Propitiation is the sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God. This is so key because he started this all out talking about sin, and now he's moving away from sin to talk about God's response or answer to our sin problem and our sin addiction. And so he's going to go back to this concept of God's wrath and Jesus' sacrifice satisfied God's wrath. God's wrath is, well, it is not just that he's angry with sin. And it is certainly not that he's off the chain with anger like this uh, guy with an uncontrolled temper. That is not the picture of God's wrath at all. God's wrath is like a knee-jerk reaction of God, specifically his holiness in response to sin. When you, I, I'm going to use a, some poor analogies here, but when you put your hand on, on a hot stove, you don't leave it there. There is something inside of you that says, remove your hand right now because there's a lot of pain. Okay, God's holiness reacts to sin. And there is a grief as a result. 
I'm saying that because it's not as if, well, God, you just need to control your temper, okay? Because it is the very nature of who God is. Even it is our nature to put your hand and you remove it. It's like a reflex reaction, a knee-jerk reaction. You can't stop your knee from jerking when it's hit right there, okay? That's beyond your control, okay? Because of how the, the nerves work. And so... I'm trying to say this is not God having a temper tantrum in view of man's sin. This is God's response of his holiness to our sin. Okay? And it is an opposition to that sin. It is an anger towards that sin. And a consequently punish, consequently a punishment that must come upon that sin. That is how, that is the nature of God and how he has created this universe. And therefore, in view of man's sin, that we cannot say, well, God, just get over it and why don't you just forgive everybody? That can't happen. God would have to deny who he is to do that. There has to be a remedy then to satisfy this holiness demand on God's part. This is a good demand, okay? And it's because the world has misunderstood God's wrath. It rejects the concept of hell. It rejects the concept of God's wrath, any necessary punishment. They, They just kind of erase it because, you know what? That type of God just doesn't exist. Paul was mistaken, or these authors of Scripture were just mistaken. That's not love, okay? And it's because they, and and even some theologians, they don't grasp this, and as a result, they change the text. They change, love wins. And so there are certain passages they just kind of breeze over. Ah, that one's not quite as inspired as the rest. Whatever they do to rationalize. I was appalled when I saw one particular blogger, um, and you would know his name, and he went through Romans and he cherry-picked certain verses, took them out of context. Even within a verse, he would take a phrase out of the context of the verse and made it say the exact opposite of what was being said. And his conclusion was, God is going to forgive everybody. God is not sending anyone to hell. God's going to forgive them all and bring them all to heaven. And he, 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 his blog was to teach universal salvation. I was amazed that he did that. That is the wickedness in man's heart to change the nature of who God is and the nature of his rescue plan. Because it allows us to say, well, you know what? then I really don't need God. I can live the rest of my life as I want, and God will get over it. Well, you know what? I see that our time is flying by here very quickly, so I'm just going to have you take a stand right now and just shake it off a little bit. Um, Only a few seconds. Just stretch those legs.
right, let's go ahead and grab a seat and we are going to get back into this. So the concept of propitiation then is the answer to God's wrath that's being revealed from heaven. That propitiation was a sacrifice. Okay? You have a question? Okay. Uh, sure. Going back, like, since we're using big words and want to know, like, for righteousness, we can say it's the imputed righteousness of Christ? Yeah, we haven't gotten to that yet, though. Okay. Yes. So, um, actually, in my notes, that's the very next thing that, uh, no, that's this next thing. Number one, um, we would say then that propitiation is the satisfying of God's wrath, and it leads to two things. Number one, that my sin was paid for, and because your sin is paid for, life for life, now that sin can both get washed away, by expiation, and God's wrath can be turned away. Okay? So, that sacrifice and what that sacrifice accomplished is the foundation for propitiation, for God's wrath to be satisfied. Okay? Because that sin has been paid for completely. And therefore, there is no more wrath, no more anger that needs to be poured out upon any believer, any believer in Jesus Christ. And so we are free from God's wrath, free from God's anger. Isaiah tells us that I will no longer be angry with you. So what we're going to move on now to chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, and I really got to put this in high gear, so my apologies as I go through this quickly. Um, verse 4 says, Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. This word credited is what the word that Stephen was getting at, this concept of imputation. You're crediting something. What it does not mean is God looks at your faith, and then when he sees your faith, he doesn't see faith anymore. He sees righteousness. That is not what he is saying. Okay, I'm reading righteousness. As if God sees our faith. Okay, and I'm just going to now turn that into righteousness. Because then that would be our righteousness. It's our faith that God changed out for righteousness. And that's not what he is talking about. So what he shares here then is when we work, the result of our work is what? What does he say there? Wage. Wage. Okay. Wages. And wages, I'm going to put in parentheses here, they're earned. However, that's not how we receive God's righteousness, justification. Instead, we have faith, and faith then, this right here is the word credited, and same with this. So my work is now credited for wages. So wages are given in response to work. 
It's not as if God takes your work, or excuse me, the employer takes your work and magically turns it into money. It is a response to your wages. It Wages are credited to someone's work, but that is earned. Faith is the opposite of work, and when we have faith, then we receive God's righteousness. Excuse me, I'm going to put rightness here, abbreviation for righteousness. Okay. The reason why I'm laying this out for us is to give us an understanding that faith somehow does not magically turn into righteousness. This then leads us, where did this righteousness come from? Where did it come from? This is important because this is where, as much as I love Charles Finney, this is where I disagree with him and I have to disagree very strongly. That righteousness does not come from me. It's not as if my faith was magically turned into righteousness because that would still make that righteousness mine, but rather it's God's righteousness. It's from heaven and it is given to me, not because I earned it, because that's what work does, but faith simply receives. It's credited and wages are credited to work. God's righteousness is credited to faith, but that then makes God's righteousness unearned. And so as a result, excuse me, I'm going to put grace. And and again, in England, there is this this right here would would rock a lot of people's theology. Absolutely not. But when we look at when we look at these passages, that seems the clear teaching of what he's saying. And this is this is so important. Okay. So any questions on that? Okay. We then get into chapter five in the original sin, and I'm going to be brief on this, excuse me, but again, there are those that disagree with the concept of original sin. Original sin is this stain from sin that has been passed down from Adam. It is not just my tendency to sin that I have received. Because that would mean, well, I still have the choice. I can still choose to sin or not sin. And you know what? That means that I have the ability, as Adam did, and he did, I have the ability to not sin. Original sin, sin says, no, you don't. You don't have the ability to not sin because you're an addict to sin. You will sin. You're going to do it. And that, it's not a tendency. It's an addiction. It's a stain. It's a disease, if you will. I'm trying to use our language today to talk about original sin. It is not just a tendency. It is this addictiveness. And it is not, it, it's even more than that. Because he says here in in chapter 5, verse 19, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, and who was that one man? Adam. Adam. The many were made sinners. I think the NASB says constituted as sinners. That means they were made, turned into. They became sin. You're a sinner. Why are you a sinner? 
Is it because you sin? What's his point here? I'm not, I'm not going to deny that you sin and you're a sinner, but his point here is not that your sin makes you a sinner, but whose sin? Adam's sin. How on earth does Adam's sin make me a sinner? Why am I guilty of Adam's sin? That, that's the response. Well, it's because this sin, stain, addiction, uh, depravity has been passed down to us. I was born a sinner. I didn't become a sinner due to my own sin. Okay? I became a sinner at birth from Adam's sin. But I am still completely culpable for my own sin. I am this addict outside of Christ, not just with this propensity to sin, but with this stain in my life that then causes me to sin. I have received the sinful nature that now causes me to sin. Sinful from my mother's womb is what Isaiah 51 says. Excuse me, Psalm 51. And so not only were we made or constituted sinners because of Adam's sin, but he says there in verse 18, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. Okay? So this one trespass was Adam's trespass, and it brought condemnation to me. I stand guilty because of Adam's sin. And the only way that can happen is if I'm a sinner. All right? Which is what he says in the next verse. So this is the concept of original sin. This is the stain. This is the, the inescapable problem of sin that we need to have an answer for. And it cannot simply be, well, I'll just do enough good works. Because I can't do that. Chapter 3 just told me, I can't do it. I will do my best to observe the law, but that's my own righteousness, and that doesn't get rid of my sin. I am still this sin addict. And so consequently, not only do I need to have my sins forgiven outside of anything that I have done or earned, but I now need Christ's righteousness. I don't need just a blank slate. You have the negative slate of sin, the positive slate of righteousness. There's no in between. There's no blank slate. God doesn't just wash your sins away. He imparts the very righteousness of Jesus Christ to you. That's the concept of crediting. So it is grace that God then gives us Jesus's righteousness. Now that doesn't mean that suddenly I'm perfect. Okay. So I, I realize that I'm running out of time here. I have preached on this, so I am going to go, uh, go on further from this. Chapter six, of course, this concept of slavery to sin, um, and the fact that we are under sin. Chapter seven shows us the inadequacy of the law to do anything to rescue us or redeem us. Uh, chapter six, under sin. Chapter seven, under law. And then chapter eight, if I could coin the phrase under 
Christ, but really the phrase that Paul gives us in chapter 6 is under grace. So 6 is under sin, 7 is under law, 8 is under grace or under Christ, in Christ. I'm using those synonymously, okay? Um, The Spirit of God, it says in chapter 8, verse 14, look at that. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So if you're, remember, you're not, if those who are led by the Spirit are not under law. In other words, you're not led by the law. The law is not your pedagogos, your pedagogue, your, your, the, the, your babysitter, glorified babysitter to tell you don't do this and do that. That was the, that was the place of the law before faith in Christ came. Now we are under this we're under God's grace, all right? It doesn't say we're under faith. We've always been under faith, guys. This is just answering the question of the place of the law. That's what we got looked at yesterday, Sunday. The place of the law. We've always been under grace. Excuse me, we've always been under faith. But now grace has been highlighted from the cross. And it does reach back to Abraham. Abraham was forgiven of his sins Why? Because he made a sacrifice? No, because of what happened 2,000 years later, more than 2,000 years. And so the cross reaches back. So it was Abraham believing in God and, in essence, looking ahead to that sacrifice of Christ. I'm not saying he understood it, but that's why his faith was credited to him as righteousness because of what happened 2,000 years later. All right, so my, my point here then is by the Spirit, we have now become sons of God, children of God, sons and daughters of God. I'm not trying to be gender specific here. We have become sons of God. We have now then received this inheritance, and that's what chapter 8 starts getting into, just that we have this inheritance and we have been brought into his family, and <coughs> um, I am going to kind of skip through some things here rather than treat each chapter, and I'm just going to let you know, I, I am going to skip the concept of God's sovereignty that we see in chapter half of chapter 8 all the way through 9. Uh, I did not want to do that, um, because the the idea is that that focuses on God's sovereignty. We come to towards the end of chapter 9 all the way to the end of chapter 10. And that is now our response to this amazing thing that God did. And that is faith. The reason why, though, he introduces God's sovereignty. And I'm going to be very specific. The concept of election. The reason why he does that is to show us that this idea of receiving Christ's righteousness, this righteousness revealed from heaven, has nothing to do with works. When you were chosen before the foundation of the world, how many good works had you done, Stephen? Absolutely zero. (laughs) Negative, okay. Absolutely none. And, And that is his point. Jacob had not done anything right, and yet God chose him. And so that the teaching of election, as controversial as it is, its very purpose is embraced by both Calvinists and Arminians. 
though I lean in, in much more towards the Calvinist side on this. But the idea is that it is not by works at all. It yeah. is purely God's grace. God's grace, God's grace, God's grace. And both sides of that issue by Calvinists and Arminians are agreed on this fact. Um, I, I would just lean in the direction of the Calvinist because that truly does highlight God's grace, I believe, much more than the Arminian perspective. Regardless, we then move on to this concept of faith. And he says in verse chapter 10, verse 9, he says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. And so we have this interesting concept then of not just believing, but confessing. Okay? And I'm going to challenge us that it is necessary for us not to just believe, but to confess that belief. Absolutely necessary, crucial here. Um, and there is something about a confession that solidifies what the heart believes. Okay? So he gets into this, this concept of faith, and then in chapter 11, he culminates this idea of God's sovereignty and faith, and he talks about the fullness of the Gentiles and the fullness of the Jews, or that is that all Jews um, will be saved, or all Israel will be saved. I do not believe that this term Israel is somehow symbolic of the church. I would say it obviously cannot be because in the previous verse he talked about Gentiles being saved and he contrasts that with the word Jew or, or Israel. Israel here is not the, is not the, um, just the church in general, which would include Gentiles, but it is truly Jews coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And at the end of the age, whenever that will be, there is going to be this eruption amongst the Jewish nation, the Jewish people, excuse me, not the Jewish nation, but the Jewish people, in believing in their heart, confessing with their mouth that Jesus is the Messiah and he alone is Lord. And there is going to be a millions and millions, I believe, coming to Christ, such that we, Paul would be able to be absolutely from correct, and so all Israel will be saved. Jim. Um, I'm just, like, couldn't somebody still say that he's referring to the church because they could use the argument that if he was referring to the Jews, he would have said Jews as he did earlier. Well, he is referring to Jews and Gentiles. Um, he's like, I know... Let, let me just... Let me just say here in chapter 11, verse 1, he says, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means I am a an Israelite myself. He doesn't say a Jew. So I'm going to suggest that Jew and Israelite are the same thing and can be used interchangeably. Also, so, in the beginning of chapter 10, it talks about how Christ desires that the Israelites be saved because they're zealous for God, but their zeal isn't based on knowledge. So he's not talking about the church there. Right. So these all Israel um, or all Jews, so I'm going to suggest that they're used interchangeably because um, I believe that's what he does in chapter um, 
11 here, um, that they are, they will be the church because they're going to believe in Jesus. It's just that they will be of a Jewish heritage and not a Gentile heritage. Because he uses the concept of Jews and Gentiles uh, earlier and then he now contrasts Gentiles with all Israel. Okay. Further comment or question on that? Oh, okay. Um, so he then begins chapter, chapters 12 through 16, the application, therefore, and this is key, therefore, in view of God's mercies, not mercy, but mercies, because he's enumerated these mercies under this concept of grace in which we deserved wrath, but we received righteousness. We deserved condemnation, but we received eternal life. We deserved rejection from God, but we have received an inheritance. And numerous blessings from God. I'm going to call these mercies because we we certainly deserved something very different than what he is than what we, we, we deserve something very different than what God is giving us. Okay. <coughs> now his response, our response though, to God, all of these mercies is that we present ourselves as a living sacrifice. That living sacrifice concept then is carried throughout this application. Okay. How then do we live as a sacrifice? He says it, he says right there, chapter 12, verse 9, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, honor one another above yourselves. These are sacrifices. When you're so angry and you want to seek revenge, mm-mm, don't take revenge. Leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And so we overcome evil with good, not with revenge, which is evil. Talking about revenge, oh Romans, now let me talk to you about your government. Let me talk to you about Caesar, who stepped into office the year before, 56 AD. And there is this sense that as Christians... Not amongst everyone, but the sense that, wow, look what Rome is doing. They're unjust. Of course, as you move into the mid-60s, especially from 64, where Rome is torched, and um, even Cicero disagreed with Nero's conclusion that it was a Christian's fault. Um, and he's the one that writes to us about it. And we get this impression that as Paul, or, or as the Christians are growing in their faith, uh, as the number of Christians are growing in, in Rome, that there is this sense, well, maybe we, sh- maybe we are no longer uh, obligated to obey the, the authorities that be. After all, God is our ultimate authority, and we need to obey him. Christ is the king of this new kingdom I'm in, not Caesar. All right? But Jesus never said that. Jesus said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And so Paul then applies that and says, hey, guys, you need to obey your authorities. 
God has actually instituted government. Now, was Nero a good governor or a good emperor king? No, he was not. Not at all. And then we get into the concept of civil disobedience that he does not get into here, but he basically just says, look, don't seek revenge. Don't seek it here. Don't obey your governing authorities. And he concludes with this concept of love does no harm to its neighbor, verse 30. Excuse me, verse 10. Well, I really misread that one. <laughs> Chapter 13, verse 10. God, lo- God, excuse me, love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And again, we see this concept of love and sacrifice. Verse 14, and, and I'm probably going to be, uh, speaking to this with the remainder of our time, I do want to highlight this, the, the focus here of chapter 14, he says in verse 1, he says, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. That word disputable matters is sometimes translated thoughts. Um, and some translations translate it that way. And I'm not going to say it's, it shouldn't be. But the context here is not just one's inward thoughts, but one's inward decisions that may be disputable. Because this word can also mean, here we go, inward reasoning, thoughts, questioning, or questionings, and doubting, or doubtings, doubts. And so the NIV, I believe, rightfully interprets it disputable matters. And we're going to come back to that, but he says in response to this, verse 15, if your brother is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Again, the focus is love. It's not to hash out this concept of disputable matters, though that's important, but it's how do we respond? And we respond in love. Chapter 15, then, he gets into verse 1. He says, we who are strong, as opposed to the weak brother of chapter 14, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. That is the essence of love. Verse 7, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. And so, again, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 is more salutations, but it is, it is about how then do we respond in view of all of these mercies. I am a living sacrifice. I, I am not just simply a Christian who is going to do the best he can to make it in this world and to build a big business and to et cetera, et cetera. It is about love. And so in view of God's mercies, I'm going to live this poured out, sacrificial, living sacrifice, life of love. And so everybody, this is Dorothy in the back, Dorothy. Okay. Uh, I met Dorothy around 4 or 4.30 this afternoon while she was down at Career Source. And so got a chance to pray for her. You're welcome to join us. We are actually wrapping it up. Class actually ends right now. But I want to get into this last little bit, okay, in chapter 14 and, and wrap this up, okay? We are going through the book of Romans in one evening. <laughs> and so we come to this concept of disputable matters. And he touches on meat versus 
being a vegetarian. He touches on one person observing one day special and another who observes all of them as special. Clean and unclean food as opposed to eating everything. He even touches on the issue of wine and meat. Now, he, are, he, he, did, he does that in, where am I here, verse 21. Um, it is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother to fall. So even though there are freedoms in these things, his point is, why should I be so obsessed with this concept of freedom now in Christ that I end up engaging in things that's going to cause my brother to stumble? Okay? So I want to ask you, who is the weaker brother in this chapter? Who is the weaker brother? Okay, their conscience restricts them. One example would be what? That's given in this chapter of the weaker brother. Okay, doesn't he mean he's a vegetarian? They would say, well, I mean, God created us originally to be vegetarians, which is true, by the way. But in Genesis 9, God gave us meat to eat. And so he does not command us to be vegetarians. All right? And so some person's conscience may restrict them as a result of that argument. Well, I should eat only vegetables because that was God's original plan. Okay? I understand that Seventh-day Adventists go that route, but Paul says that they are the weaker brother. because, And Paul reiterates in First Timothy 4, etc., that God has given us all food to eat, and we should give him thanks for that, okay? Questions, Jeff Rose? Um, couldn't it be that this person he's talking about is someone who engaged in idolatry, and that's why their conscience restricts them from eating meat? Because that's something that they did as part of... Because that was an argument that I heard before, is not just that, like, oh, they're a vegetarian because of Genesis, but because they would eat meat as part of an idolatrous practice. And okay. That's why they thought it was wrong. Here's why I would disagree with that. Okay. And that is because number one, he doesn't address the concept of meat sacrificed to idols at all, like he does in 1 Corinthians. Okay. He doesn't do that. That's my first clue that maybe that's not what he's referring to. The second thing, though, is that even though Romans is mostly written to Gentiles, there are still Jews in the church, and Jews certainly would not have offered their meat to idols. And so they, even though, and, and certainly not all Gentiles, whenever they would, you know, as cattle ranchers would slaughter a cow, would offer that meat to an idol. That was on special occasions only. So I would venture to say that most of their meat, that even Gentiles, idolaters would eat, had not been sacrificed to idols though some of it was. And the question that Paul rises is, well, what do you do when it's sold in a marketplace and you don't know? His response is, don't ask, don't tell. That's basically what he says. Just don't ask. Why raise issues of conscience? Because it doesn't matter if it's been sacrificed to an idol. If you don't know, because an idol is nothing. All right. Excuse me, one quick second. Did I answer your question? Then okay. So quick question about that, and then I have my original question. But that one is like, if the meat is like, I don't know, like some kind of meat or something, where it's like some 
sacrifice to the Muslim god Allah. Like, okay. is that if like if you go to the store and it says like that's that kind of meat, that does that restrict us from buying it? What would First Corinthians eight we we talked about two weeks ago? Yeah. I'll open that up to the glass. Should we buy that meat? If you know and you eat it with someone else who knows, because it is not, it's not your conscience, he says in First Corinthians, it's your brother's conscience. Do it for their conscience sake. Okay. But for us, it's fine. Yeah. Okay. Now, I, I would have a problem purchasing that meat because the, the cashier would see me purchasing it. Others may. And, and so I am very particular with regard to alcohol because of that. Because I don't want to cause my brother who has had issues with alcohol to stumble. And so I, I believe that I follow Romans 14 here. And so I, I place certain restrictions on myself in some ways, some areas, so that I don't cause my weaker brother to stumble. The weaker brother would be the vegetarian. The weaker brother would be the Sabbatarian. That is, that the Sabbath is still holy and you don't do work on the Sabbath. Technically, the Sabbath was never changed from Saturday to Sunday. Okay, it wasn't changed. There's no verse that says that. It talks about the Lord's Day and people worshipped Christ on the Lord's Day. That would be his resurrection day. But Christ fulfilled the Sabbath. Okay, but what does he say here? Stop disputing this issue of the Sabbath. Stop disputing, I'll use present day, whether someone chooses to celebrate Christmas or not. We rejoice that Christ is born. There are some people who choose not to celebrate Christmas for various reasons. They have that freedom, okay? Christmas is not more holy than December 24th. That's what Paul just tells us here in Romans 14. It's not, because every day is holy. Now, there are those who are weaker, their conscience is weaker, They because of how they've been brought up. No, Christmas is really holy. I have to go to church on Christmas. I got to do this and, you know, mass, etc., whatever. And, okay, that is totally fine, Paul says, because you do it unto the Lord. If you want to observe the Sabbath, you do it unto the Lord, and that's fine. Why pass judgment on one another? If someone chooses to observe the Sabbath, how is that going to hurt their faith? It's not. So why pass judgment on them? If someone wants to be a vegetarian, why pass judgment on them? Well, you know, the Bible says in Genesis 9 that God gave us all meat to eat. And, uh, okay, and, and that's fine to dialogue about it. Just don't pass judgment on them. Okay? Because observing the Sabbath can actually benefit people. Not observing the, the Sabbath can as well. However, did Christ fulfill the Sabbath? Yes, he did. Did Christ declare all foods clean? Yes, he did. But for those who choose not to eat unclean foods, they do so unto the Lord. So why argue about it? That's his point here. Stop passing judgment on one another. This is a dispute. It's, it, it, it's not an issue of the kingdom of God. However, if you go around saying, hey, you can't eat that unclean food. That's unclean. That's what the Bible You have to observe the Sabbath. And now you strap them with the law. That is a problem that Paul would have with. Okay? You'd have a problem with that. But I have plenty of... I came out of that tradition in which I grew up a Sabbatarian. I, 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 Sabbatarian meaning you observe the Sabbath. 
Okay, except it got changed from Saturday to Sunday. Regardless, there was a lot of condemnation and, you know, don't work and don't do this. Well, and then the big question was, should we go out to dinner after church? Because I am supporting people who are working on the Sabbath, at least they called Sunday the Sabbath. And so we would discuss that. And then just as, as I began to just do my own personal study, I began to realize Scripture tells me that Christ fulfilled the Sabbath, so I, I have freedom to go out and eat dinner. And even though by eating dinner at a restaurant I am causing them to work, I'm not a Sabbatarian, and I can do that with a clear conscience. Okay? All right. So there are benefits for people treating days as special and benefits for those who choose to treat all days as holy. Okay? So we do all things, though, to glorify God. And if in the process of me exercising my liberties, though, I cause another brother to stumble, and so personally, I choose not to drink alcohol in public. That is a personal choice that I've made. Because if there's an, another person there who knows I'm a pastor and they see me drinking, it could make it very hard for them. And they could, and I've seen this happen, where they rationalized and they chose to drink alcohol. I'd rather not be the cause of that brother stumbling. And so I will sacrifice that liberty. And that's Paul's point at the end of here. Sac don't be afraid to sacrifice your liberties if it's going to cause another brother to stumble. Why destroy them in that way? And yes, people who do not know how to drink alcohol responsibly and get drunk, that destroys them. Destroys them. Okay? Any questions on disputable matters? Chapter 14. Yeah? Uh, just like, so when it says that it's a weaker brother, or like they're weak, is it, is it talking about like over, like they're weaker, like overall, or just in that one area? No, that's just in that area. And so um, the weaker brother might be, oh, I see that you're eating f meat sacrificed to idols. And they, they feel condemned. They might participate in it. And Paul concludes with anything not done in faith is sin. Okay, And so consequently, he says, just, just don't do that. It's not a big deal. Okay. That's disputable. Sorry, just okay. I'm, I'm joking there. Mm -hmm. um, that's a really good question. I would venture to say that it would be really good to discuss those issues because most women, especially from the world, do not understand just how they dress can impact a guy. And if anything, if many of them have learned how to dress to get a guy's to look at them twice, three times. Um, but 
I, I would venture to say that it would be good for women to understand that how they dress can affect how guys can look at them. So just dress in a way that honors men. Okay? Now, some guys, they're just going to lust regardless. So what do you do? Do you, do you dress like the Muslim woman and only let your eyes be seen? That's, that's their conclusion. That's what they say. I would disagree with that. And so there, there is, it's disputable as far as where you draw the line and in cultures where you draw the line. Okay. Because I don't have any problem with a woman's ankles showing, but you go into other cultures, no. I don't have a problem if a woman's knees show, but you go into other cultures and absolutely not. I think I wear a very modest bathing suit, but in some cultures, it would be shameful. So does that mean I'm sinning? So the idea, and this gets then into the concept of manners. Well, that's a whole other subject, huh? But we have manners so that we respect people and don't offend them. We have customs and cultures so that we can respect people. This is not an issue of, of right or wrong, whether um, I shake someone's hand, but if I am introduced, if I am greeting somebody, it's rude for me not to extend my hand to shake their hand. Now, for a woman, you generally let them extend their hand first and then you shake them. You know, that's a little odd, but that's what our custom, that's what our culture says. And so we, we do adapt to our culture. Um, but there is, there is such a thing called immodesty. Okay. And I'm, it might be a little bit hard to know exactly what is modest and what is immodest because that can vary. But if it causes your brother to stumble, and that's what chapter 14 talks about, then sacrifice your liberty. Okay. I need to close. Okay. We're way over. So. Let me do that. Father, I want to thank you for, again, the truth of your word. There's so much here. And, and I just pray, Father, that we were able to hit on those things that were impactful and important and necessary, helpful for us just as we grow in our faith in Christ. Jesus, thank you that you were that sacrifice that washed away our sins. You were that sacrifice that turned away the wrath of God. And so that we stand in complete forgiveness, in, in, in God's outpoured grace, outpoured love that never ends, that is infinite in measure. And, and we, your word says you rejoice over us with singing because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. God, you are good. Thank you that you gave us this remedy for our brokenness and our sinfulness and our rebelliousness, and you did it in Christ, and what he accomplished on the cross and by his resurrection. Thank you for this, Father. Allow us to walk in all of the implications of that, God. And as, as Paul says, to be living sacrifices poured out in view of all of your grace and your mercies to us. May that characterize our lives, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.